On October 5th, 1703, Jonathan Edwards was born to Reverend Timothy and Esther Stoddard Edwards in East Windsor, Connecticut. Jonathan was a brilliant young man. When he was 13, his father enrolled him at the newly founded Collegiate School of Connecticut, later to be known as Yale College. He graduated at the head of his class in 1720. He spent his life preaching, eventually was called to be the president of Princeton College on February 16th, 1758. One month into his presidency, there was an outbreak of smallpox. And Edwards chose to be inoculated to prove to others that there was no need to fear this medicinal advantage. And in a strange providence, Edwards contracted a secondary infection and died on March 22nd, but five weeks into his presidency. In his biography on Edwards, Steve Lawson writes of Jonathan's wife, Sarah, and of her words upon the news of her husband's death. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him, it's Jonathan, so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Like Sarah... Charles Spurgeon is credited with once eloquently saying, I have learned to kiss the wave that drives me against the rock of ages. So why do I tell you this? Well, Spurgeon, like Sarah, had learned to embrace the hardships in his life because they, like waves that thrash Ships in the ocean, they threw him upon him who is the rock of ages. The Edwards, Spurgeon, and countless others throughout history have learned to embrace suffering in their lives. And I want us to do the same. And it's from Spurgeon's statement that I draw the title for my sermon this morning which is the sentence of death, kissing the wave. And with that, I invite you to turn with me, if you have not already done so, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It will be in verses 3 through 11 this morning. Our key words are affliction, comfort, and death. Perhaps some of you are thinking, this is really exciting. So glad I came here this morning to hear about suffering and death. I do have a particular reason for which I intend to lay this before us this morning. Whether you know it or not, we need to hear it. People in in our midst, this very moment even perhaps, are suffering. 
Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Really, it just comes on... It comes with living on planet Earth after Genesis 3. But Christians know suffering well. Some of you know suffering very well. You know what affliction feels like. You know what it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. You know what it is to lose someone you love. You know what it's like to struggle with sin. You know how it feels to wonder... Where's the money? Like, really, where is it? Because we don't have any. Some of you, perhaps, are going to know suffering in a way that none of us this morning can ever imagine. Tomorrow is not promised to us, much less a rosy tomorrow. And I want us to be prepared for affliction when it comes our way. We shouldn't wait until we're right smack dab in the middle of something to try to figure out what in the world is going on with our lives. So let us this morning treasure up God's Word in our hearts so that when the rod of affliction comes, when the wave comes, we may be ready to kiss it. So I pray that we would hear the Word of God for us this morning. Before we get there, uh, please allow me a, a brief word about the contextual matters of our passage, and then we will dive in. There's little debate that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. That's good news. Unfortunately, there's debate about pretty much everything else. So here's what I think we need to know about Paul and the Corinthians this morning. They had had quite a complicated relationship. Here's the way that I understand it. First, Paul founds the church in Corinth, and this is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 18, 1 through 17. Sometime after he leaves, he writes a letter. They respond. Then he writes 1 Corinthians in response to this letter and reports he's been hearing about them. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, it, it's not the most joyful, exciting letter, one that you hope to find in your mailbox. However, after this letter, the conditions at Corinth simply deteriorate, prompting a second visit, which I don't believe we have recorded in the book of Acts. And here he takes the opportunity to strongly warn the Corinthians. Unfortunately, there uh, were some, or maybe even just one, that continues to openly defy Paul as a true apostle. This this results in a second letter, uh, or uh, really a third letter, which is a severe letter, and it intends, uh, it sends it intending not to have to come and give a second painful or severe visit. This letter has not been preserved for us, and now we come to 2 Corinthians, which is the second inspired letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and here's the point of the letter as a whole. Paul is seeking to prepare the way for an enjoyable third visit. He wants to come a third time and he wants to remove any obstacles that might prevent that visit from being pleasant and beneficial to all. 
This then brings us to the text of 2 Corinthians. The book can be seen as having three main sections. First, chapters 1 through 7. In these pages, Paul is concerned with expressing his happiness and relief that the Corinthians received his severe letter as well as they did. Second section, chapters 8 and 9, Paul urges them to complete their promised collection for the saints at Jerusalem before his arrival on the next visit. And third, Paul names his intent to come to them and how they should prepare for it. And our passage this morning falls in the first section and is really uh, perhaps should be considered part of the introduction to the letter rather than part of one of these three main headings. The essence of our passage is a blessing from Paul extolling the God of all comfort and giving thanks for God's provision in his own life. Paul's usual M.O. in his introductions is to give thanks to God for the church to whom he's writing. However, Paul has been hurt by the Corinthians and it seems that he's, he's thanking God for preserving him through the hurt. He's also making his forgiveness of the Corinthians known. If you know anything about Paul, he is an exceptionally qualified man to write on the topic of suffering. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians here in this passage uh, to encourage them in suffering. And I want to examine Paul's words under four headings. First, we'll take up uh, verses 3 through 5, which really will just be a part of verse 4 um, in that section. And we'll consider the blessing that comes with affliction. Second, we'll consider part of verse 4. Uh, that we didn't get to in that section, verses 6 and 7, and we'll see a reason for affliction. Third, I want to examine Paul's hope in affliction, in verses 8 through 10. And fourth, we will ponder a proper response to affliction in verse 11. So first, the blessing of affliction. Let's read verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul begins this, uh, his address to the Corinthians by blessing God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he highlights two characteristics about God. He's the Father of all mercies, and He's the God of all comfort. God isn't just merciful, but He is the Father of all mercies. If you wonder where in the world can mercy be found... Found in God and God alone. And so too, He is the God of all comfort. Comfort, mercy, uh, characterize God. They originate in God. All comfort, all of it, comes from God. Apart from Him, no true comfort can be found. Since the fall, we all live with this subtle perhaps not so subtle, anxiety and need for comfort. 
So we cover ourselves with leaves, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, and try to comfort ourselves with various pleasures. But they leave us empty and without comfort. They fail us and we are reminded that we don't have any comfort. Save God. He alone is where lasting and true comfort can be found. Paul continues uh, in verse 4, This Father of mercies, this God of comfort, is the one who comforts us in all our afflictions. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that God comforts us in affliction. If he'd only said that, then maybe the Corinthians might be tempted to think that uh, there are times when they are afflicted that God comforts them, and then there are times when He doesn't. Paul's not making a general statement that God usually comforts His people in affliction. And comfort can be found in God. Rather, Paul is saying that God comforts His people in every one of our afflictions. God is the comforter for all our trials and troubles and all the trials and troubles that have fallen upon the Corinthians. God helps us to bear up under all our troubles. When he was taken to be jailed, a man named Samuel Rutherford once wrote, In haste, making for my palace in Aberdeen. Well, he meant, of course, prison. He, he goes on, he says, No king is better provided for than I am. Sweet, sweet and easy is the cross of my Lord. My chains are over-gilded with gold. No pen, no words, no genius can express to you the loveliness of my only Lord, Jesus. Oh, the sweet comfort that comes to the Christian through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian has a limitless supply of comfort to which he can turn in times of trouble. God has not left us here with no access to Him when difficulties come our way. But He has given us His Spirit. And God is a comfort to us, to the Corinthians, in every affliction. Especially those that come upon us because of our union with Christ. Our identifying with Jesus. Verse 5, Paul says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. The idea here is that while Paul, while Paul and his companions are partakers of the reproach of Christ and they endure suffering and persecution for the sake of His name, they are also abundantly comforted. The comforting hand of Paul's loving Lord can do far more for him than his afflictions can trouble him. Christian, Hear the Word of God for you this morning. Now while Paul is speaking, at least in verse 5, of suffering, I think for the sake of Christ, specifically here, we've just said that God is the God of all comfort. 
So if you are suffering, hear these words. I plead with you. Why is affliction a blessing? It's the question that we're asking under this first heading. I, I know many of you are suffering now. You've suffered in your lives. Perhaps you're suffering under great distress at this very moment. Perhaps there are days when it is just so hard to get out of bed. Maybe weeks. Maybe years. There's great blessing that comes through suffering. And here it is. In your suffering, you receive comfort from God. In the middle of your trouble and strife, God is upholding you. God is giving you your strength to make it through the day. In your suffering, God is drawing you near to Himself that you may lean upon His breast and enjoy great communion and comfort with Him. He comforts you. That is a blessing. Can you hear it? Can you hear the voice of your heavenly Father? Can you hear Him speaking to you this morning in His Word in the midst of your troubles? Child, be still. This sorrow will last for the night, but joy, joy, Joy is coming with the morning. O Christian, doubt not the love God has for you, even in suffering. Run to Him, for in your trials and troubles, He is there for you. Second, I want to consider a a reason for suffering. There are many reasons. Paul gives us one here. And we'll look at part of verse 4 and then verses 6 and 7. Why does God bring affliction upon the lives of His children? Why does God comfort the Corinthians in all their afflictions? It's so that they may be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort with which they have been comforted by God. Do you see it? Look in the text, the second part of verse 4. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Grammar, folks. The phrase so that indicates purpose, doesn't it? Paul says that God comforts Paul and his companions and his children by extension in all their troubles for the purpose of them being able to comfort those around them that are in any trouble. The reason that they have received comfort is so that they can give comfort to others. Affliction and comfort is, they come to us as a means of turning our gaze from ourselves to other people. 
Paul writes in verse 6, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. The purpose of his suffering is for the benefit of the Corinthians. God comforts Paul in his affliction, not merely so that he, not merely so that he will be comforted and receive this blessing of, of having God hold him, but also so that Paul will be able to comfort others who are suffering. Paul's specific and actual sufferings that he endured in life have equipped him to comfort and be a benefit to others in any of their sufferings in life. So too, our sufferings in life equip us and prepare us to be a blessing and benefit to others. Charles Spurgeon, whom I quoted earlier, the one who had learned to kiss the wave that throws him upon the rock of ages, suffered a lot. His son, Charles Jr., wrote of him, I know of no one who could comfort more sweetly than my dear father. Impart comfort to bleeding hearts and sad spirits. As the crushing of the flower causes it to yield its aroma, so he, having endured in a long-continued illness of my beloved mother and also constant pains himself, was able to sympathize most tenderly with all sufferers. It is through suffering and the comfort that we receive in the midst of that suffering that we are prepared and made ready to comfort others. The end of verse 6, Paul says that the Corinthians share in the comfort of Paul and his companions when they patiently endure the same sufferings that Paul suffers. Some of you have had to endure much suffering in your life. You have dealt with much loss and tragedy. You have been ill. You have been hated. Do you ever ask why? Well, there, like I said, are many reasons, but Paul is giving us two this morning, perhaps. You've suffered much loss in order that you may grow in your communion with God and so that you may be able to comfort others who are enduring affliction. Your suffering is not pointless. Your trials and troubles are not to some futile end, Christian. If you suffer, you will be comforted by God. And if you are comforted by God, it is so that you will know His love and compassion for you so that you will be able to comfort others who need comforting. Paul says in verse 7, he strikes a note of hope. He says that his hope for the Corinthians is unshaken. And again, he stresses that as they share in suffering, they will also share in comfort. Now we've considered from this text a blessing of affliction, a reason for affliction. Now I want to draw out Paul and every Christian's hope in affliction. 
That's verses 8 and 10. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Before we look at each of these verses individually, I want to summarize them. And I couldn't come up with a better summary than the one I'm about to read you from uh, one commentator. He says, Paul now informs the Corinthians of the dire nature of his recent brush with death in the province of Asia. An experience so devastating that only through God's direct intervention was his life spared. The outcome was the surrender of his self-dependence and the realization that further encounters with death awaited him. But if the Corinthians were faithful in their intercession for him, he would continue to enjoy deliverances from death's clutches. Paul wants the Corinthians to be aware of the dramatic effects this disaster or affliction had on him. He mentions in verse 8, He does not give specific details as to exactly what this affliction was. Rather, he points to the nature of it and what it produced in him. This is to be a means of encouragement and exhortation to the Corinthians to persevere in suffering themselves. He says, We were utterly burdened beyond our strength so utterly burdened that we despaired of life itself. The net translation of the Bible says that Paul was burdened excessively beyond his strength so that he despaired of even living. And these two phrases that Paul uses to describe this burden as beyond measure and beyond his ability to endure truly highlight how oppressive this experience was. We use a lot of hyperbolic language in our culture, especially teenagers. In fact, we use it so much, we probably tend to read right over Paul's words here. Paul is is telling us how utterly anguishing this affliction was. The verb that's translated here, we despaired, it carries with it the idea of total unavailability of an exit from oppressive suffering. Paul felt that he had no way out. He had come to a place where he was so weighed down, so burdened that he believed life was truly slipping away from him. Though Paul had been delivered time and time again by the hand of God, in this moment he, that he, to which he's referring, he was so crushed, so weighed down, he just knew his life was over. 
He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He felt as though he was an inmate on death row, merely waiting for his imminent execution. God had, in, had issued the sentence. Now it was only time, a matter of time. When would it come? How much longer was he to endure before he was snuffed out? So why does he not want the Corinthians to be unaware of this? Why does Paul tell the Corinthians about it? Why am I telling you about it? Why did Paul have to despair of life itself? Why must we do the same? What hope is there in that? Paul says that he received the sentence of death To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's a quote from M.J. Harris on the lesson that Paul learned in his suffering. In the aftermath of his affliction, Paul reposed his trust and hope only in God. He had learned the spiritual lesson that for the Christian, self-reliance not only is inadequate to meet the demands of a life that is pleasing to the Lord, but also constitutes an affront to God on whom we are totally dependent for our physical and spiritual well-being. Paul had received this affliction, this death sentence, in order that he would stop relying upon himself and rely upon God. Paul was to stop being self-sufficient. He was to be reliant upon God. Specifically, though, what is it about God upon which Paul was to rely? It's the fact that God raises the dead. Paul was driven to the point of despair without a visible way of escape, not for the purpose of despairing, but for the purpose of turning his eyes upon the triune God who rules heaven and raises the dead. Paul could endure even this sentence of death because of God, because God raises the dead. This trial was sent to Paul so that he might know with absolute certainty the veracity of his words in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Turn there for a moment, if you will. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death could have separated Paul from the love of his God. And friends, this very moment here, I pray, nothing can separate you from the love of God either if you are in Christ Jesus. Many of you know what it's like to despair. Another commentator writes on this passage, We often ask, why has something in our life, or indeed life itself, fallen flat? Sometimes God has let every door in our ministerial face, or our financial face, or our physical face, or whatever. Otherwise, we might have relied upon our intelligence, our beauty, our family, our cash our whatever. So God closes every door and we are at the end of our resources. Then suddenly we realize that there is just one door. If anything happens, it looks as if God will have to do it. God will have to do it. Then God says, well, child, isn't that the point? Haven't you been telling others that? Don't you think it will work for you? That is when death works in us. So how are you responding right now? Are you still relying upon yourself? Have you not maybe endured that much suffering and you think, Oh, I got this. Upon whom are you leaning? Are you leaning upon yourself? You must stop. You must stop now. Take this very moment and hear the call from God to stop trusting in yourself. Your self-reliance is not a little sin that God can overlook. Look at him trying to be so strong. It is an affront to him. It is an attack on his Holiness. Cut out your treasuring and living upon yourself. Live upon God. He is an infinite fountain of goodness and it is He that raises the dead. We, every single one of us in this room, are going to die one day. We all must reckon with that fact. Yet God is able to raise the dead. And not just is able, God does. He raises the dead. And how do we know it? Not just really, really, really hope. How can we know that God raises the dead? Because He raised Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born to the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God's law in the place of sinners. Then He died a death in the place of sinners and was raised for the justification of sinners. The resurrection is proof that God loves His people and that nothing can separate Him from them. So when you happen upon suffering, if you haven't yet, you will. Or rather, when it happens upon you, turn your eyes upward. Gaze to heaven, to your Creator, and trust and hope in Him. If you are here this morning and you are relying upon yourself, whether it's the category of not a Christian, you, I always rely upon myself, I don't need God, or whether it's I am a Christian, but I struggle with self-reliance, I pray that you would repent of your self-reliance. Lean upon God. Oh, friends, stop puffing yourselves up and throw yourself upon Christ. I pray the waves of your lives will throw you upon the rock. And not just any rock, but the rock of ages. May you be driven to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel, I pray. Forsake your sins and cling to Christ. He is our only hope. And even though Paul, back to Paul now, he he despaired of life. He was essentially on death row. He says God delivered him from such a deadly peril. Paul not only trusted that God would raise him from the dead if he actually died, but that he could spare his life. Friends, take comfort. God can raise the dead. He can also raise the nearly dead. God can deliver you out of your troubles. Paul says that God has delivered them. And then he says that God will deliver them. And I believe that clause is Paul qualifying his statement. He says, uh, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. In that next sentence, Paul's essentially saying, At least on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again from physical suffering. Paul is asserting his hope and trust that God will deliver him. And like Paul, it is right that you and I should set our hope on God, trusting that God will deliver us. Oh, Ephesus Church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And remember, if you are in Christ, not even death can separate you from the love of God. Lastly, we've considered the blessing of affliction, a reason for affliction, hope in affliction. Verse 11, very briefly, I want to consider a proper response to affliction. Paul writes, you also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf 
for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul concludes uh, this portion of his letter by asking the prayers, by asking for the prayers of the Corinthians. We pray and God answers. Oh, how intricately connected the providence of God is with prayer. How magnificent of God to deign to work through our prayers. That we might make our requests known to God and He do something about them is amazing. Paul asserts here that he has great hope God will continue to deliver him provided that the Corinthians pray. So what is the response to affliction? Pray. Hope in God. Rely not upon yourself, but on God. And when you are able, comfort those who need it with the comfort with which you have been comforted by God. So church, let us together learn to kiss the wave that drives us against the rock of ages, for there is no other foundation upon which we may build. Let us learn to kiss the rod that strikes us, for it does so with the loving affection of a father. There is no other surety in heaven or on earth. There is nothing and no one except Jesus Christ that can or will save you from the wrath to come. Though suffering, affliction, and death are our enemies, they are not our friends, they are our enemies, let us embrace them and love our enemies. For though they try to crush us, they serve our great God. So let us with Jonathan, with Sarah, with Charles, with Job, the man who suffered greatly, recorded in the Scriptures. Let us with the prophets and the apostles of old treasure up the hard providences of God. For it is behind those difficult and frowning providences that He hides His smiling face. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through faltering lips, inadequate speech, that Your Word would go out with power this morning. I pray, God, that you would cause us to think on your word. Lord, that you would take it and implant it deep within us. Lord, that you would prepare us for loss and affliction, for illness, for sorrow. Lord, and I, 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 I want us to be prepared, not in the sense that we grit our teeth, 
we buckle up and we muster up the strength to endure. We put on a smile for the world. And then we weep in our souls. Prepare us, Lord, by causing us to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ above all other things. Help us, Lord, to look to you, not to ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.